take this uh, morning and that you would be pleased with what happens here. We pray that you'll be pleased with the substance in our hearts this morning. In your holy name we pray, amen. A few years ago, I was in Cleveland on a business trip, and uh, those of you who have been to Cleveland, you may know that there's not a whole lot to do there. And I had some free time on my hands, and uh, I was there with a coworker, and both of us are musicians, so we decided we were go gonna go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So, you know, there, there were plenty of things to see there. It was the kind of things that you'd expect to see in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There were a lot of instruments that famous people used. There were stage outfits that famous people had worn. Uh, we even walked through Johnny Cash's tour bus, which was kind of neat. And uh, at the time, there was a special exhibit uh, going on. It was a Bruce Springsteen exhibit. Now, I was never a Bruce Springsteen fan, but when I was in high school, that was when he was at the pinnacle of his career. In 1984, he came out with his most popular album, sold the most copies of any of his albums. It was Born in the USA. And some of you may remember the album cover. It was a, it was a picture of him wearing blue jeans and a white t-shirt, and he was standing in front of an American flag, but the picture of him was of his backside, right? And it was a close-up of kind of his rear end, and he had a red baseball cap hanging out of his back pocket. Well, it didn't do much for me, but you know, I'm sure there were a lot of female classmates of mine that uh, really enjoyed that album cover. So here I was, 20 years later, walking through the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and looking through all of this Bruce Springsteen memorabilia. And, you know, they had the typical stuff, the guitars, and they had a lot of sheets of notebook paper. Man, the guy had sloppy handwriting. They had all these sheets of notebook paper where he kind of scribbled down his lyrics as he was writing his songs, a lot of stuff scratched out. And you could look at those sheets and you could recognize songs that later became big hits. So we're walking through um, this exhibit, and we come to a point where there's this big frame hanging on the wall, and in this big frame are his pants. They're the pants that were in the picture on the album cover of Born in the USA. Of course, backside out. <laughs> and I looked at it, and I just thought, wow. I guess you really know you've made it when your pants are hanging framed in a museum, right? But there they were, and I'm sure they were interesting to some people because they were the real deal. They were the actual pants that he wore on the album cover. These were probably the most famous pants in the country in 1984. It wasn't a picture of the pants. It wasn't a replica of the pants. It was the real deal. Well, this morning, we're not going to go into a detailed look of Bruce Springsteen's pants. I hope that doesn't disappoint too many of you. But we are going to look at the first chapter of Mark. And in the book of Mark, uh, Mark is trying to show the reader that Jesus is the real deal. But why? Why does, why does that matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is the real deal. Why did it matter to Mark? Why did it matter to Mark's audience? Why does it matter to us if Jesus is the real deal? I mean, when I took a look at Bruce Springsteen's pants, kind of like, okay, and I went on with my life. It had absolutely no impact on my life whatsoever. But does the fact that Jesus is the real deal, does that matter? So that's what we're going to talk about 
this morning. Shakespeare wrote, brevity is the soul of wit. And what that means is uh, your words will be more impactful if you just get to the point and don't beat around the bush. Of course, I say that as I'm up here preaching a half-hour sermon. But Mark was a very get-to-the-point kind of a guy. Uh, his, out of, out of all the Gospels, his is the shortest Gospel. He completely skips over a lot of details that you find in some of the other Gospels. He completely skips over the birth of Christ even. Mark was focused on the power of Jesus. He was focused on the action and the supernatural aspects of Jesus' ministry. He was focused on proving that Jesus was the Messiah, that he's the one, that he's the son of God, that he's the real deal. And perhaps one of the reasons that he got right to the point was because of what was happening in their society at that time. He was probably writing from Rome during a time when Nero was persecuting Christians. And so I think maybe he wanted to show these Christian readers, Jews and Gentiles alike, that Jesus was the real deal. It was important for him to convey that to them because they could, in fact, be called into suffering and possibly even death for following Christ. And so Mark wanted to show them that Jesus is the real deal. Jesus is worth it. And it's important that we stick with Christ even when things get difficult. So Mark starts chapter 1 with John the Baptist. He talks about how people came to see this strange man out in the desert. You know, he, he dressed like a wild man and, and uh, he ate wild stuff. He ate whatever happened to crawl up to him that day. And um, what was it, though, that caused people to go out and see him? He wasn't entertaining people. He wasn't giving away free iPads. He wasn't offering them anything except an opportunity to repent. So let's look at what he says. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 1 of Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Now, I'm going to stop right there because that sounds like an introduction that we would tend to want to just gloss over. But I want to look at that a little bit because he's saying right off the bat that this is the beginning of my explanation of what really matters. Other gospel writers started their gospels with the story of the birth of Christ, right? But he is explaining to this uh, believing audience that in his explanation of the gospel, which means good news, in his explanation of the good news, this is where it starts. It starts with John the Baptist out in the desert. It starts when Jesus' ministry actually begins. And so he says, this is my explanation of the good news of Jesus Christ, who is none other than the Son of God. He's not a prophet. He's not a celebrity. He's not a replica of a celebrity. He is God, and I'm about to give you the good news. That's what Mark is saying. So let's look at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, 
and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, to prove his point, Mark starts out by quoting Isaiah, but he doesn't quote Isaiah talking about Jesus. He talks about Isaiah talking about the one who will prepare the people for the arrival of Jesus. He starts by introducing us to the introducer, John the Baptist. And he's making the point that John was evidence that Jesus is the real deal because Isaiah talked about him. And it wasn't just Isaiah. Malachi also, in the Old Testament, predicted the coming of John the Baptist, foretold the coming of John the Baptist. And so Mark is starting out by making this first argument in his case to prove that Jesus is the real deal by saying that, see, John came just like Isaiah said he would. And who did John talk about? John talked about Jesus. And the people came. They came to see John because they knew that he was a prophet. They knew that he was the messenger spoken of by Isaiah. So why do we go see a doctor? Doctor's not entertaining either. He's not giving away iPads either. But we go see a doctor because we know that he's going to point us in the right direction. He's going to show us the way to maintaining our health. He's going to look at us more deeply than we can look at ourselves and probably more deeply than we would even want to look at ourselves. He's going to show us the points where we're failing. He's going to show us that if we change our ways, change our bad habits, stop doing the things that are harmful to us, it'll lead to a happier and healthier life. So like a doctor, John is kind of doing the same thing here. He's giving the people a diagnosis, and he's saying, you people, you have a fatal disease, and that disease is called sin. And the cure is coming. You're going to see the cure soon. But in order for that cure to be effective, you need to be prepared for the coming of the cure. He pointed out that the first step in the preparation is baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism isn't the cure. It's preparation for the cure. And these people were ready for that. These people were ready for a new beginning. These people had not seen a prophet in 400 years. So all that they've really experienced is the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law that would instruct them on the law. But at the same time, they're seeing these, these people, and they know about the hypocrisy in their lives. You know, they know that these guys have added a bunch of rules and regulations that aren't even in the Bible. But now a prophet has come. For the first time in 400 years, a prophet has come, and he has a message from God. And so these people wanted to go and see this prophet. They wanted to hear what this message was. Was it going to be something different than what the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were saying? And it wasn't just those who were nearby and curious. Verse 5 says, and all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to see him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So the people came from all over. They went into the wilderness to confess their sins. And why the wilderness? 
Well, I think there are some practical reasons for doing it in the wilderness, and I think that there are some spiritual reasons, too, for doing it in the wilderness. For one thing, I think that the wilderness helped people to focus on what the message was because there were no comforts in the wilderness. They had no control over how hot the sun was going to be that day. There was no food in the wilderness. They didn't know if they were going to be attacked by wild animals. And so in a sense, I think to some degree, they had to put some level of faith in God, even just to decide to go out into the wilderness to see John, because there was some risk involved. There was some discomfort involved. I think the wilderness also provided separation from everyday life. Those of you who have ever been to a retreat, you know the value of kind of being able to separate yourself to focus on God, to get away from the laundry that needs to be done and the lawn that needs to be mowed and the job that you have to go to. It's good sometimes to be able to separate yourself and be able to focus fully on God. And I also think that part of the reason may have been to keep kind of a safe distance between him, John, and the religious teachers in Jerusalem because they weren't approving of what he was doing. They wanted to be in charge of the instruction of the people. And this wasn't the first time that God led people out into the wilderness. It happened back in the Old Testament, too, right? When the Israelites came out of Egypt, God led them into the desert for 40 years, teaching them what it means to rely on him. God took them to where they had nothing so that they, so that they were forced to rely on him, so that they were motivated to listen to him. Now, isn't that true for us too isn't there isn't there a spiritual aspect to this that that we can relate to as well i mean when do we ask people to pray for us is it when we're well or is it when we're sick we ask people to pray for us we seek god when we're sick not when we're well what about when we're broke if we're out of a job we're going to be more apt to 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 go to god when we're struggling with our finances than when we have a job and a steady income and everything's going fine we're going to be more apt to cry out to God when we're struggling in our marriage than we will be when our marriage is doing great and things are just moving along smoothly. So there's purpose. There's purpose to the wilderness. Now let's take a look at verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here John is saying, I'm not the one. I'm not the one. I'm just the introducer. The real deal is coming, and he's going to have real power. John pulls himself back, puts the Messiah in the front, and says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah. He's saying, compared to Christ, I'm nothing. Now think about that. This is the same guy that's prophesied by Isaiah and Malachi hundreds of years before he's even born. So he must be pretty important in the eyes of God. And yet he's saying, compared to Christ, I'm nothing. I'm just the introducer. And John says, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
Let's look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, this is kind of crazy. While everybody comes out to see John, Jesus appears, okay? But nobody knows who he is yet. His public ministry hadn't started yet, so he's not a recognizable figure. He's not a celebrity. He appears, and he's just one more guy in the crowd. He's waiting in line for his turn to be baptized. Isn't that crazy? Jesus waiting in line to be baptized. Does Jesus really need to stand in line to prepare for the coming of himself? Why does Jesus need a baptism of repentance? Well, Mark spells it out for us. Let's compare verse 5 and verse 9. Verse 5 talks about the people coming to be baptized, and it says, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. Now let's look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. You see the difference? See the difference? There's something missing in verse 9. The people came confessing their sins. Jesus didn't. There were no sins. There were no sins to confess. This was the perfect man. This was God in human flesh. This was the real deal. So Jesus didn't come confessing his sins. His baptism wasn't a baptism of repentance. In a way, I kind of think that maybe his baptism was almost like a preview. When we're baptized, we're symbolically going into the water and, and we're washing our sins away, right? Well, we're not really washing our sins. It's, it's symbolism. And in a, in a way, I think we can also take some symbolism, like when we, we go under the water, we're kind of showing how we were buried with Christ, and when we come out of the water, we're resurrected with Christ, right? We find resurrection with him. We can breathe again. We have life. And when Jesus was baptized, I kind of struggled with this part of the sermon, to be honest with you, because I've read different interpretations of why Jesus went through this, this baptism. And uh, a lot of it was uh, because he wanted to show us his humanness. And I, and I uh, agree with that, but I kind of look at Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter 11 when the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus asking for a sign. And Jesus said, I'm not going to give you a sign. The only sign that you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And what he meant by that, the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't know what he was talking about. But what he meant was that was just like Jonah was buried in the earth, in a sense, in the belly of a fish for three days and then came out, I will be buried in the earth for three days. I will be buried in the grave and then I'm going to come out. And I kind of wonder if maybe Jesus' baptism was kind of a reference to that, being buried and then emerging again. Regardless, all of this, all of this, everything that Jesus did was because of our sin. Had it not been because of our sin, he wouldn't have been here. He didn't need to clean up his sin. He needed to destroy our sin and take care of that. Sin is bad stuff. 
Remember Lord of the Rings? How many Lord of the Rings fans do we have here? All right, not too many, so I, I, I don't know if this, uh, this uh, analogy is going to work real well here. But, <laughs> but sin is like the ring. It weighs us down. It consumes us. We want it while at the same time we despise it. It brings us death, but it does it in a way that makes death look inviting. Sin never looks like death. If it did, we'd find it much easier to run away from it. Sin makes death look like life. Sin makes death look like fun. Sin makes death look satisfying. Sin makes death look like everything that it is not. And we hold no power to destroy it. Going back to the the Lord of the Rings analogy, remember when they had the, the ring on the table and Gimli is there with his axe and he just heard about how this this ring is going to destroy Middle-earth, and, and it's evil, and it needs to be destroyed. Gimli takes his axe and tries to destroy it, whacks it, and his axe just bursts into a million pieces. He had no power to destroy it. Well, guess what? We don't have any power to destroy sin either. We ha- have nothing that we can do, but we try. We try to destroy sin. How do we do it? We try to do it by being a good person. We figure, hey, if, if our good outweighs our bad, right, then that'll destroy sin. I'll be okay. That's a bad joke. We can't do it. We have no power to destroy sin. The only way that sin can be destroyed and the only way that people can be made free is for Jesus to take it to the grave and destroy it forever. And guess what? He did that. He destroyed it forever, and only he could do it because only he is the real deal. He went to the grave. He took our sins with him. He came out of the grave. Our sins did not. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and he shouted, Father, why have you forsaken me? Well, he shouted that because the Father did forsake him at that moment. For the only time in all of eternity, the father turned his face away from the son. And that was so agonizing to Jesus. That was more agonizing than all of the pain that he was enduring through the crucifixion. That turning away of the father was more agonizing to him than anything else. And why did he do it? So that he could pay our debt. Not his. He didn't have any debt. And here's Jesus putting himself in the wilderness, in the words of Isaiah, to be numbered with the transgressors. Even though he wasn't one, he chose to be numbered with the transgressors so that he could put our sins in the grave forever and buy our freedom. He couldn't do that if he wasn't the real deal. Let's look at verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Remember in Genesis when God spoke and the earth came into being and it says that the spirit hovered over the waters. Well, this is kind of like a sequel. 
here, the heavens open. Jesus comes up out of the water. The heavens open. God speaks in an audible voice and says, you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. And the spirit of God is hovering over the waters again. This time, it's the waters of the Jordan River. And he lands on Jesus. And again, Mark is using this this word picture, this analogy, to prove that Jesus is the real deal. It didn't happen to John. It happened to the one that John was baptizing, the real deal. Let's look at verse 12. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So Jesus went to one wilderness to be baptized, and then immediately he's taken to another wilderness to face Satan for 40 days. Now Mark, again, you know, the brevity of wit guy, he uh, doesn't go into a lot of detail, but some of the other gospels go into more detail about some of the temptations that Christ faced, right? So during that time, he faced not only temptation, but he faced hunger during those 40 days and and thirst and weakness. He went to the edge of what the human body can tolerate, but he never wavered. Before he could go to the cross, before he could take our sins and get rid of them for good, he went to the wilderness. In Lord of the Rings, Frodo couldn't just take a united flight to Mount Doom and then catch a cab to the entrance to Mount Doom and then take the ring and and throw it into the fire as if he was throwing a penny into a fountain. No, he had to go through the wilderness, right? He had to go through. He had to face the enemies. He had to face wild animals. He had to face hunger and thirst, and he had to get to the very edge of what the human body can endure before he could cast that ring into the fire and destroy it. And that's an analogy of what Jesus did for us. Going through the wilderness, he came and he endured everything that we could possibly have to endure in this life. He could relate. And Mark tells us something in verse 13 that um, the other Gospels don't mention. He mentions that Jesus faced wild animals. Now, this is something that's, again, easy to gloss over, but I think that there's uh, a relevance to to this verse uh, that has a cultural meaning because, again, going back to the fact that he was writing to persecuted Christians, one of the things that Nero would do when he was persecuting Christians was he would throw them into an arena with wild animals so that spectators, cheering fans, could watch as that Christian is being torn apart by wild animals. And so I don't think it's an accident that Mark puts that line in there and says that he was with the wild animals. I think Mark is saying, you know what, Jesus can relate to you. Jesus can relate to what you're going through and what you might be facing. Mark is pointing out that persecution is a normal consequence of following Jesus. Now, we're very fortunate in this country because we have the freedom to be able to speak our mind and fight for what we believe is right 
it's okay to get upset when we see evil being rationalized and normalized and even being turned into law. It's absolutely right for us to defend our values by getting involved in political discourse because we live in a country that gives us the freedom to do that. Freedom, by the way, that was modeled in the word of God. Freedom that is based on the foundation that we are all created equally in the image of God. However, having said that, we also have to realize that this is their turf, not ours. This world is not our home. In the wilderness, one of the things that we know that Satan tempted Jesus with was he took him to a high place and he said, see all these kingdoms, Jesus? I can give all of this to you. Well, he couldn't offer that if it wasn't his, right? The kingdoms of the world belong to Satan. This is his home, not ours. And as long as we live here, we're going to face the same Satan. We're going to face the same demons that Jesus faced. And when this earthly life ends, that's not the finish line. When this earthly life ends, that's the starting line. When this earthly life ends, eternity begins. And that's what I think Mark was trying to convey to these persecuted Christians. He was saying Jesus wasn't just a great guy. He was the real deal. He was the cure. And without him, we are utterly, utterly lost and without hope because we have no power whatsoever to destroy our sin. Even with the freedoms that we enjoy today, we are slaves to sin, right? We're still held captive by sin, and we do it willingly. We don't want to give up our sin. Jesus can, and Jesus did. He faced the wilderness. He came out the victor. And only he could, because only he is the real deal. He put death where it belongs. He put it in the grave. And now he offers us the cure. He offers us the cure. And it's up to us whether we're going to decide to take it and say yes or say no thank you. Remember at the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, after the ring has been cast into the fire of Mount Doom and the ring has been destroyed, it's not the end of the story because Frodo is still hanging there. He's still hanging there, and, and Sam is struggling he, to keep him from falling over this cliff, right? So Sam's holding on for dear life. Frodo's holding on for dear life. But the ring has been destroyed, right? Everything's fine. No, everything isn't fine because Frodo's still hanging there, clinging to life. One false move, and Frodo falls to his doom. That's us. Sin has been destroyed. Christ has destroyed sin, but yet we're hanging there. The story for us isn't finished yet. We're hanging there. We're hanging there, and Jesus is holding us, right, keeping us from falling over the cliff, and we're hanging there, and we're saying, Jesus I don't need you because my good outweighs my bad. Do you
you see the folly in that? You see how ridiculous that is. When we should be saying, Jesus, I can't do this. I need you to save me. I need you to pull me up because I can't do it. I have no power in myself to do this. Turning to Jesus costs us nothing, but it costs us everything at the same time, right? There's no amount of money in the world. There's no amount of charitable contributions. There's no amount of uh, community service that can redeem us from our sins. But he does it for free. In return, we give him our lives. Not as payment, because we could never pay for that. Not in payment, but we give him our lives in gratitude. And so in closing, the question I want to ask you, the question I want you to walk home thinking about today is, what will you do with him? Now I'd like to ask Pastor Lucas and the ushers to come forward for the communion.
Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin and left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow.
left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as 